0: Welcome back. Thanks for joining us tonight. Thank you for the time of prayer and focusing on our relationship with God. Tonight we're going to dig into Malachi chapter 2, just as a little bit of review, and then we'll actually dig a little bit more into what the book of Malachi is really about. But the book of Malachi is the last book in our Bible, of course. It is the last of the prophetic books. It's probably not the last. Sorry. It's probably not the last specific events that are in the Old Testament. That probably is the end of the book of Nehemiah and the book of Esther. However, it really does, in many ways, represent the last message that God has for the Israelites. And certainly, because of the Gospels, we can see the trends that Malachi is describing. The challenges that the Israelites were dealing with during Malachi's time are going to continue. And so in many ways, Malachi and Matthew and the rest of the Gospels are very closely connected. And so that's really what we're going to see tonight and next week and the week after that. We're going to see all these connections between the New Testament and Malachi. So it's very well placed in our Bibles, even if it's not necessarily the very last thing to happen in the Old Testament. I mentioned last time that the book of Malachi is really a series of seven rhetorical questions. And chapter 2 is slightly unusual um, in our Bibles. Remember that chapter markers are not original to the text. So these things that are in chapter 2 do sort of stand apart. They seem like different topics, and they are to a certain extent. But they connect back to an earlier statement from chapter 1. And so I'd like to start tonight with Malachi Chapter 1, verse 13. This is the last rhetorical statement that Malachi made. And we're actually going to finish tonight with the fourth rhetorical statement, which is found in Malachi 2, verse 17, which actually in some ways applies to this section as well. But just so you're aware, we're going to start in verse 13 of chapter 1, then we're going to jump into chapter 2. This says... But you say, this is the people, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord. So the last section of chapter 1 is really about the unfit nature of the sacrifices that the Israelites were bringing. What chapter 2 is going to show us, is that the Israelites are ignoring or they are actually subverting or taking the law and they are using it for their own purposes... And we're going to look at several different examples of this. So this is all a long connected section, some of which we talked about last week, some of which we're talking about today. It's important to remember that Malachi is likely a extended dialogue, meaning God gave Malachi messages. He brought them to the people and the people responded to Malachi, oftentimes attacking or deflecting from what God had to say. In fact, we're going to see in the end of chapter 2 that the Jews actually went on the offensive. Rather than accept what God had to say and accept correction, they're actually going to bring accusations against God. Not that God needs to defend himself, but he does answer their attack But that's how they're responding. And so Malachi is a collection of not only what God has to say, but we have these responses, bad responses, by the way, responses not to follow in our own personal lives from the Israelites. Now Malachi is going to ask these questions and then he's going to provide the answers showing how the Jews truly regard God and that's what we're going to see today. We're going to see repeated evidence that the Jews did not view God the way they should and ultimately that was their problem. It was a disrespect for God. It was a disrespect for his truth. Now again, just so that we have the context we need here, I just want to very briefly remind you of who we're talking about. The Jews that Malachi was talking to were returned exiles. These were the people that had come back from Babylon after they had been exiled in 586 by the Babylonians. Um, They've thrown off a problem. Previously, the big problem in Jewish life was visible, obvious idolatry. But unfortunately, that idolatry has shifted. It's still around as in idolatry of placing something other than God at the center of one's life is still around, but it's changed. It used to be they would exchange God for other gods, Baal or many Assyrian deities that are mentioned throughout Scripture. But now they've got a new problem in that they're missing the point of the law. They're missing the fact that God and glorifying God is the purpose of the law. And instead, they think that keeping the rules and having more rules is the point. Despite the fact that Malachi and the other prophets and the leaders like Nehemiah and Ezra are calling the people to repent, unfortunately, the reality is they never did. We know this because, again, many of the trends of Malachi, I already mentioned this, are going to be fulfilled in the Gospels. We're going to get to see where some of the things we talk about tonight find themselves 400 plus years later when Jesus is around. Really, tonight, specifically, the first half of our chapter is about the priests and the problems that God points out are problems that are going to directly show up in the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So this chapter particularly is connected in that way. And again, Malachi has all sorts of connections. We're going to see awesome Messiah connections in the future chapters, which is really exciting. But this is a future problem connection. We're going to see constant connections between where Judaism is going and where it is in Malachi. We see that the religious leaders, and we'll look at these verses in a moment, they're on this path of doing religious ritual, but doing it incorrectly. We even see a really detailed description here in chapter 2 of the priests actually twisting their responsibility and twisting the truth that they had. And God actually says they're giving it out selectively. He doesn't accuse them of not giving out the truth. That's not the accusation, but they're actually giving it out selectively to help themselves, not to actually teach and aid the people. So they're literally taking the truth of God and they're turning it into a way to stay in and the reality is that's exactly what the Pharisees and the Sadducees were doing. They were the elite, the aristocrats of Israel, and they absolutely used the law to stay in power. Not all of them, of course. There were a few Pharisees who perhaps had good intentions like Nicodemus and Paul, but a vast majority were abusing the law of God to stay in power. God directly warns them not to do that here in Malachi chapter 2, but they're doing it anyway we also see that the priests were not obeying God's commands because, of course, they were inconvenient, something that we noted in verse 13 there. So let's finally dig into our text itself. We want to talk about Malachi chapter 2. Now, Malachi chapter 2 is actually a bit shocking. God uses some shocking language. He's done this multiple times in the prophets, notably uh, in the book of Hosea. He certainly has some shocking language However, again, he uses shocking language. I will summarize it for you rather than read it directly. Malachi basically says that priest, if you continue in what you are doing, God is going to throw your works into the dung and then he's going to throw the dung on you because that's what he thinks of what you are doing. Now, this is extreme language. It's extreme language in our terms, okay? We don't often talk about throwing dung at people. This is extreme language in biblical terminology. This is not common for the Bible in any area. However, the purpose of this is to show us the extreme nature of the problem. Now, God doesn't list specific things in this particular section. He doesn't say specifically what the priests are doing in the first few Verses, he immediately transitions into the priest breaking a covenant, a covenant that God had made with Levi. Now, this is actually a really challenging thing to study out. If you wonder what the covenant of Levi is, or if you haven't heard of the covenant of Levi, that's because really when it comes to a direct title in the Old Testament, there is no specific covenant with Levi. Instead, the covenant with Levi really represents God's entire um, program that he has with the priests that he set up in the Old Testament. So there's no place, if you flip through your Old Testament, you're not going to find a specific place where God says, this is my covenant with Levi. However, Malachi actually is quoting the book of Numbers in this section. He is using the same words in the same order very intentionally so that he can show us where God really forms this covenant. It might interest you to know that the covenant is found in Numbers 25 verses 11 through 13. This is actually a really famous event for Israel's priests. This is actually when the Israelites have been seduced by the Moabites and many in the camp are violating, interestingly enough, God's rules about marriage with foreigners. We're going to pull that that thought and come back to it here in just a few verses. And Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the grandson of Aaron, he actually goes and he purifies the camp, which primarily means he kills people who violate God's laws, and he drags them back into obeying God's law. This is what God says in Numbers twenty-five, eleven. 13. Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore, say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement For the people of Israel. Now Malachi is building a very specific case here. His wording that he has put in his book matches the wording of Numbers 25, 11 through 13. These words are not very common throughout the Bible. Uh, They're not normal words used in the Old Testament. In fact, they're almost exclusively found in these two passages. So clearly Malachi was familiar with this passage, and this is what he's referring to. The priests were being held to the standard that Phinehas displayed. He was... Completely loyal to God's covenant. He was zealous. And interestingly enough, Malachi says that one of the priests' job is to correct the people and to teach them. Something we see Phinehas do. He corrected the mistakes and he taught people how to live. Something that the priests in Malachi chapter 2 have completely abandoned. Now one major thing that God focuses on in this passage is actually his name, which is again one of the things that Numbers 25 also makes a really important point about, and that is that acting correctly glorifies God, and acting incorrectly actually dishonors God's name. And so he's really trying to make this point. What What's important necessarily isn't What you're calling God. It's not the name you're using for God that's being talked about here. It's every sin, every bad action by the people that are supposed to represent God takes away, in a human sense, from God's glory. And the priests were an embarrassment to God. They were actively damaging his name when actually their job was to be the complete opposite. They were supposed to be the ones that were bringing more honor to God's name because they were acting on his account and they had completely. Dropped the ball. They had completely missed this. Now, this also leads us to the question of Levi himself, because if you know your Old Testament, you might be asking yourself, if you've read Malachi chapter 2, why God gushes over uh, Levi. Levi is mentioned here as God's original priest, and he's done all of these amazing things. But again, if you go back into your Old Testament, you don't necessarily find the details here that Malachi is referencing. In fact, Levi, uh, in the book of Genesis, primarily is mostly bad news. Uh, He tricks people and then murders them. He is passed over for the blessing uh, and the birthright of Jacob. He abuses his brother, Joseph, right? He helped throw him in the pit and did not care that he got sold off into slavery. So Levi's reputation in Genesis is not particularly good. But this is why God gave us all of scripture. And this is the amazing thing that we get to see, because much like Judah, apparently Levi had a change in his Um, In his future, at some point after where the Genesis account stops in Levi's life, apparently he did become a God-fearing and commendable man. Specifically, God commends him in Malachi chapter 2 for a life of peace, which is completely contrasted to how Levi had lived earlier. Again, he tricked and murdered people. He's fearful or respectful in his obedience. He spoke true instruction to others. He spoke purely And he taught and he reached out to others. Now, again, I wish I could show you where that was in Genesis, but in Genesis it's not recorded for us. But we know that this is true and that this was the pattern that the priesthood was supposed to be taking. Levi had demonstrated these things. And again, there's several examples of priests throughout the Old Testament that have demonstrated these things, but the priests of Malachi are completely failing in this regard. And the bad news is they're not going to get any better at it, but that's okay. Because of course, here's the passage I'm sorry I should have put that up earlier we're leading towards the ultimate priest one of the another really interesting thing about malachi is it's often quoted in large chunks in the new testament and the language used to describe levi actually is used by the author of hebrews to describe jesus and so while the jewish priests are never going to get this right we have good news because eventually we will have a high priest who does in fact get all of these things correct. Hebrews 8 through 10 describes Jesus as not only perfect from the start. Levi, you know, changed. He turned it around. He went from really bad to apparently living his life in a way that reflected well upon God. Jesus never had to make the recovery. He started as a perfect high priest right from the start. And Jesus today is our high priest, constantly making much of God, and advocating for us by the way jesus is also teaching us through the holy spirit and is the ultimate guide to how a priest or religious leader should act so really god has fixed this priesthood problem through jesus christ the actual priest jesus is perfect and those that follow him are able to follow his example and therefore avoid these problems that the priests have been having Now, it's not just the priests that are problematic, though they certainly are part of the problem. We then have a discussion by Malachi of two huge problems in Judah. And if you are familiar with Malachi chapter 2, it unfortunately most often comes up in connection with these two issues. And these are challenging, but the Bible is true. And these two things are true. It does take a little bit of work to understand them, to make sure that we are saying exactly what God is saying and not adding anything to what God is saying. But these are really important and again, they show a disregard for God's designs, and that's why they're really important to talk about for us as New Testament believers. We actually see two marriage problems in Malachi chapter 2, and they're treated in sequence. The first problem is intermarriage between the Jews and foreign peoples. The second problem is a culture of divorce that was occurring in Israel. Now, these are both law issues. God has clear commands on both of these topics, All throughout the law in multiple locations. For example, we have teaching about intermarriage with other peoples in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Divorce is a little bit more limited in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 3, but of course, if you extend the topic to marriage, it's all over the law. Divorce is also mentioned specifically by name in Isaiah 50 and Jeremiah 3. So these are very important topics, they're topics that God certainly has weighed in on, and the Israelites were ignoring what God had said. Let's deal with intermarriage first. The problem with intermarriage from what God teaches in the Old Testament is not anything to do with ethnicity or race. That's not it. It has everything to do with making sure that you find a partner who worships the true God. That's the problem. In fact, the law has a number of specific commands for how to bring someone who is currently outside the covenant of faith into the covenant of faith. In fact, it has significantly more information on how to do that for women marriages and captives in war than it does for men. So certainly the problem, according to the law, is not the fact that someone was born of another culture or born to another people group. That's not the issue. What absolutely is the issue is what a person believes. The law is very clear. If you were going to bring someone from outside of the culture into your home, and if you were going to marry that person, they have to become a follower of of God. That is a requirement. In fact, there's several specific laws. For example, women captured in war had to be given a month to mourn their parents. They had to shave their head and they had to take away all foreign ideas and images and even clothes and regard themselves as Israelites. Otherwise, they were not acceptable. A failure to do this. Number one shows a failure to follow God's commands. It was inconvenient to do all this. I think it would be a bummer for any ladies to have to shave their heads and wait around for a month. That would uh, put a major uh, brakes on most marriages. And there's other complications as well. But it shows a lack of respect for God. But it also has, of course, long-term significant problems. And the long-term significant problem has to do with... With the rearing of children. And God says that later on in Malachi chapter 2. That's the ultimate purpose of the bringing together of a union. God wants godly offspring, and that can't happen if your wife or your husband is a worshiper of a foreign deity. This is not to be allowed, this is not to be accepted. On a regular basis. Now, this is different, by the way, from the New Testament. In the New Testament, of course, we have people becoming Christians who were not previously Christians. Certainly, Paul and Peter both acknowledge this, and they talk about how those kind of relationships work and the dynamics involved there. So the Bible is not blind to that. However, the New Testament also very clearly says, be not unequally yoked together. So this is not something the New Testament authors came up with. This is a consistent theme throughout scripture. Marrying someone outside of a believer is something that God says, don't do, don't do it. It is not the correct way to do things. And it was causing immense problems in Israel. You might actually know that Ezra and Nehemiah both deal with this. Now on a human level, we probably try to have sympathy for the Israelites because there were a reduced number of them and there was lots of people living around them. But God says, my law has not changed. My expectations have not changed. So he says, intermarriage is not acceptable. You have to stop doing this. You cannot continue to marry outside of the faith because it's going to negatively affect your children in the way that they should go. This is Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Shema, family discipleship, and that can't happen with people that don't follow God, don't believe God. The second challenge, excuse me, is the challenge of divorce. This is a very complicated topic. And this is important to understand because God is dealing here with what we might call a negative, where in Deuteronomy, he dealt with something we might call a positive. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, he says, you may divorce if there is indecency in the marriage. You may divorce if there is indecency in the marriage. Here in Malachi, he kind of says the opposite. He says that he hates divorce, And not to divorce the wife of your youth. And so we have to ask ourselves how do these two things work? In concert, because in, de- in fact they do, and of course Jesus has things to say on this in the book of Matthew as well. So the scripture is consistent in how it teaches on this. Here's what we need to understand God, of course, created marriage from the beginning, as Paul tells us, as an example or a mystery that has been revealed through Jesus Christ. He's shown us what the purpose of marriage is, and it's to picture what Jesus Christ actually did for us. It shows us that love, that Christ modeled perfectly for us that sacrificial love. And it also represents the permanent binding that Christ offers to us. If we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, it is a permanent relationship. So on this basis, marriage is supposed to be sacrificial and it is supposed to be permanent. That is the picture that God is painting. Now, clearly, from the law of Moses, God understands that because of sinfulness, that sometimes the picture of marriage, which is of the perfect union of Christ and us, there's going to be challenges and problems. And in cases of indecency, apparently it was allowed for divorce to happen. However, what Malachi is talking about is divorces for other reasons. Specifically, it seems that the people of Israel were abandoning the wives of their youth, or you could translate it as the wives of their childhood. In other words, wives they weren't so fond of, and they were trading them out for other wives, most likely foreign wives. Now, part of this is cultural. Certainly, Israel was not a romantic marriage place. Okay? That is a modern invention that we enjoy today. That is not how it worked in the ancient world. Marriages were contracts always. Marriage in Joseph. For example, Mary and Joseph, for example, were a contract marriage almost undoubtedly. This is simply how things were done. However, interestingly enough, this actually leads us with a higher standard in the ancient world than today. If you have a contract and you're married through a contract, you might have less in common with that person than someone you actually choose. And yet God still expects for you to stay faithful to that person. Even more so, if you've chosen a person, if you've chosen to combine your life with them, you're held to the same standard of not breaking away from that marriage unless, again, there is a sinful problem that enters in and makes that marriage untenable. Again, we have to admit that the Old Testament does allow for these certificate of divorces But where they are allowed to be used is extremely narrow. And it's very clear here from Malachi that God prefers that that not be the case. He hates it and he certainly does not condone divorces for simple choice. And again, by the way, this is particularly aimed at men. The language of the passage is actually masculine specific. So this was a clear male problem in Israel at the time. They were divorcing their wives, throwing them out, not fulfilling their uh, requirements, the things they were supposed to do for them in marrying other women. And God says, I condemn this. In fact, I'm not listening to your sacrifices as a result of this because you're not following my commands. Now, here's an interesting thing. The Israelites don't listen to God here. In fact, they perhaps say the most offensive thing in the entire book as a result of malachi challenging them on these particular topics and it's in verse 17 rather than repent rather than say god okay we'll think about this we'll listen perhaps we'll rework our lives which by the way they did for ezra and nehemiah not for malachi instead rather than repent they actually respond and they say this this is the very end of verse 17 everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the lord and he delights in them now, remember, the Bible records truth. It says what is true. That doesn't necessarily mean that each individual phrase in the Bible is accurate, as in it's a universal truth. This is obviously not true. God does not delight in evil. He certainly does not think evil is good this is what the people are saying and they're wrong in fact it says that you have wearied the lord you've literally frustrated him and annoyed him god uses this language very rarely oftentimes in the law the israelites literally annoy him same wording here you've annoyed god with your statements by the way you don't want to annoy god in case you (laughs) didn't know that okay he literally god feels worn down mentally by their foolishness this is a completely silly comment so while god is saying you are not fulfilling the law they are actually attacking god and claiming that god is not allowing justice to be done so they have so completely flipped in their thinking so completely gotten so completely backwards in their thinking that even when god confronts them with clear violations of the law they actually accuse god of being a god who does not have justice. Now, the irony, of course, is that it's only through God's great mercy that the wicked are in any way not destroyed immediately, right? We all deserve as sinners destruction immediately. That's what God should do, but he's merciful and he gives us an opportunity to realize our sin and to put our faith in Jesus for us, put faith in the Messiah, the coming Messiah for them. He's giving us mercy so that we can have that realization. What we deserve is universal destruction. God is merciful. And what he wants to do is give us a chance to satisfy his justice through Jesus Christ. So rather than the fact that evil remains, that's not evidence of God's injustice. It's actually a reminder that God is just, but he wants to have mercy on us. He wants us to be with him and he has to satisfy his justice, but he's made a way for us through Jesus Christ. Now we're going to talk more about that now, because now we're going to switch from the unfortunate realities of these trends in Israel are going to continue and they're going to result in the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all that bad stuff. Chapter three is going to start to pivot and we're going to start to talk about the connections to the solution to all of these problems. And that is the Messiah, the threads that lead to Jesus specifically start in chapter three and they're really exciting we'll talk about that next week let's pray Lord, thank you for the opportunity to discuss this tonight thank you for the opportunity to consider what you have said the truths that you have put down help us to understand them and to understand them with grace and truth but thank you lord for jesus who took our sins on the cross who made a path forward for all of us no matter where we've been in the past no matter what We've gone through and we know that you have paid for those sins and that you have made it possible to be right with God. We thank you for that. We thank you for the salvation that you've offered to every one of us. We ask you to give us boldness to share you and that salvation with others as we go this week. We ask all this name in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Thank you for watching this video of one of our recent services. It's a pleasure for us to have you join us from a distance join our church in a time of worship around the Word of God. The most important message that we can tell you is that God loves you. He loves you so much that He gave Jesus Christ as payment for your sins. And the Bible says that all that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. We want you to know that message, that true life is found in Jesus Christ. An eternal life. The opportunity to live with God forever in heaven. In spite of our sinfulness. True life is only found in Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Would you be willing to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Would you be willing to pray something like this? Lord, I know I'm a sinner, and I know there's nothing I can do about my sinfulness. I don't want to pay for my own sin, and I want to put my faith in Jesus. I want His death on the cross to pay for my sins. I want to repent from doing things my own way and make Jesus Lord of my life. Would you be willing to pray something like that and put your faith in Jesus Christ? If so, we want to help you as you start your spiritual journey with Jesus Christ. God loves you. Our church loves you. We're glad that you could watch this message today. God bless.